Well, I, I don't have to say much to remind you that 2020 has been a really unusual year. There have been so many uh, dramatic upheavals and unexpected challenges that have just brought so much change. So much has changed in our lives since the beginning of this year. I mean, we've had to change the way that we work. We've had to change the way that we do school. We've had to change the way that we recreate. We've had to change the way that we do church. There has been so much change in such a short period of time. But let me tell you this, that one aspect of American life that unfortunately has not changed is our growing polarization and deepening disdain for one another. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know if you remember this, that there were a lot of folks saying, oh gosh, this is, maybe this is an opportunity as we all suffer this collective uh, difficulty that we might actually be coming together because we're, we're all in this difficulty together. Well, unfortunately, instead, it seems like the season of pandemic has only deepened societal divides. So whether it's opinions about the nature and danger of the virus or opinions about how to correctly respond to the virus or about the wearing or not wearing of face masks and and then in the light of our racial crisis, opinions about race and racism in America, and then, and now as we're going to the school year, you know, divides about public versus private school or learning in person or learning online. It just seems like that we are more divided as a people than ever before. And it's a good thing that there's nothing else in 2020 coming down the pipe that is at all going to be divisive because we just couldn't handle that. Oh, wait, there is. It's called the election coming up in November. So, so you see, um, it's just a lot. And Pew Research Service has tracked polarization in America for many years, and they have found that our mutual contempt for each other continues to deepen and spread. With over 90% of Republicans and 86% of Democrats reporting, quote, holding unfavorable or very unfavorable views of the other party, which is almost triple the percentage of a generation ago. And what's even more disturbing is that they did another study that found that 20% of Democrats and 15% of Republicans reported thinking that, quote, the country would be better off if large numbers of members of the other party simply died. Mutual death wish. And so, I mean, not, not only is this deep division just eroding the fabric of our republic, but it's actually causing tremendous emotional stress and strain on all of us, especially when that division begins to seep into our relationships, into our families, into our churches. Well, then we have Psalm 133. How good! and pleasant when we live together in unity. And you're like, yeah, right. <laughs> how good, how pleasant, how impossible, right? I mean, John Calvin himself called this, quote, one of the most impossibly unanswerable prayers. And yet, as the pilgrims made their way to Zion, this is one of the songs they sang. As and just, you can just imagine it in your mind, you know, as tensions arose between tribes and families on the road, 
Um, as people j- competed for the scarce resources of, of shelter and water, as rivalries and conflicts between different clan surface, this is the song that they kept singing. This song of unity. They knew that they could only make it to Zion. They could only make it to, to God's house as if they did it together. They did it as a unified people. And so, my dear, dear church friends, this is a song for us. In this journey that we are on, especially in this moment where there are so many challenges and there are so many temptations to division and conflict, this is a song that God gives us on our journey together to sing. A unity song. And so let's look at this psalm. Let's look at what it teaches us about unity. And I just want to ask just three simple questions of unity based on this psalm this morning. First, what is it? What is real unity? Second, uh, why is it so important? And third, how can we get it? So first, what is unity? What is real biblical unity? Now, I know this sounds like a kind of an obvious question, uh, but it's actually not because I think it's really important that we get deep into the Bible to understand what God's vision, what biblical unity is really all about. And we got a little hint here in the psalm. Look at verse 1. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. You know, the Hebrew actually literally says, how good and how pleasant the dwelling of brothers together. And of course, brothers includes sisters as well, brothers and sisters together. Now, in this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel would actually travel all together. And so it was this enormous collection of people, 12 distinct tribes, each one having their own culture, their own distinctive way of life, their own patterns, their own family habits, their own ways of doing things. And so this was not like a little group taking a road trip, all sharing like an SUV or something. This is actually this incredible, enormously large, diverse group of tribes, clans, and families all moving together as a unified community. And so this psalm was a call to them to be unified in all of their complex diversity. And so what we see here is that biblical unity, this is really important, y'all, I want us to hear this. Biblical unity is not uniformity. Uh, It is not sameness. It does not mean a community where everyone is alike, uh, where everyone is the same, everyone is in total agreement about everything. Actually, this is remarkable. If you look at this theme from Genesis to Revelation, the biblical definition of unity God's vision for humanity is always harmony in diversity. It is differentiation in oneness. Let me just do a quick biblical survey. Start with Genesis 1. God creates humanity. How does God create humanity? He creates them as man and woman, Adam and Eve. And he says that his image, his imago Dei, the image of God, will be revealed in and through the differentiation of their genders. We see God creates that in them, that God cannot be properly imaged through a single homogenous representative, but only through the differentiation of genders, male and female, only in then is God's image fully revealed. Oneness and diversity. We see the great anchor point of the whole Old Testament, Genesis 12, when God makes a promise to Abraham. He promises a Messiah, and he says, out of, the, out of this Messiah, all of the nations, the word is ethnos, the ethnicities, the nations of the earth will be blessed. The diversity of the nations of the earth will be blessed together, unified around the seed, the Messiah. 
In Jesus' life, when he incarnates among us, we see him bringing together this wide array of, of people of different backgrounds, like men and women and upper class and lower class and, 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 and the, the uppermost and the guttermost, you know, bringing them all together into this new community that he is binding together in himself. And then in the early church, we see Paul constantly preaching about this new humanity, the household of the church where there is no Jew or Greek or male or female or slave or free, but we are now bound together in Christ. And he, and he challenges the church when he sees them drift towards uniformity. If he sees them segregating into Jew and Gentile like he sees in Galatians, or if he sees them trying to become just similar to each other in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, you are not all an eye, you are not all a hand. The body needs diverse parts functioning harmoniously as one differentiation in unified oneness. And then, of course, at the end of the Bible in Revelation, we see all of the nations, the beautiful cultures of the earth, all gathered together around the throne of God, every tribe, tongue, people, and language, singing the praises of Jesus around his throne. Beautiful diversity and harmony united around Jesus the Christ. So you see, Unity is not uniformity. It is not sameness. It is harmony in diversity. That's how the Bible understands unity. And so in our church, bringing this down to the level of our own church, third family, what we see is that we actually want there to be great differences among us in gifts, in abilities, in cultures, in backgrounds, in perspectives, because God's vision for his community is that we would represent the diverse humanity of the earth. His vision is that the church would be the people of different genders, classes, races, cultures, income levels, even opinions, uh, would be bound together in Christ, functioning as one in harmony. Not uniformity, differentiated oneness, harmony in diversity. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? <laughs> and you might ask, well, how is this possible? We'll get to that in a moment, but it's just the teaser here is that it is only possible through God's gift of grace in Jesus it is the only way, the only one, Jesus the Messiah, who can bring that kind of diverse humanity together in one. It's only in him. Okay, so that's what is unity. But that leads to our second point. Why is this so important? Well, Psalm 133 is really interesting because actually the entire message of the psalm is summed up in verse 1. And then in verse 2 and 3, there's just two similes that illustrate the lesson that is given in verse 1. So let's look at those two similes because they tell us why unity is so important. So first, verse 2, is the simile of oil. It says, Unity among God's people is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robe. Now this sounds so weird, doesn't it? You see, I didn't shave. I tried to grow a beard this week because so I, I thought I could pour oil on it and show, show you, but it did not get very far. Um, so so what, what in the world does this mean? This sounds so strange to our modern ears. Well, this is actually a reference to the consecration of the Aaronic priests, the priests in the line of Aaron um, in the Old Testament. And when someone uh, was called into the priesthood out of the line of Aaron, they would be literally set apart. They would be called to be different, to be set apart from the community. And there would be a ceremony, essentially an ordination ceremony, in which that man would be consecrated, and the consecration happened through the pouring out of oil, which signified the anointing, the Holy Spirit of God, coming down upon that person to consecrate them, to sanctify them, to set them apart. 
So simply put, this is saying that in the same way oil set the priests apart as holy and distinct, so our unity in all of our diversity sets us apart as holy and distinct. When God's people are unified, it shows us as holy, which just simply means different, set apart, distinct. It makes us called and sanctified for the mission that God has given us. Okay, that's the first simile. Second simile, though, is similar in verse 3. It says, it is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Now, that could never happen because Hermon and, and Zion were very far from each other, and Hermon was known for its lots of dew, and Zion was known for its dryness. And so this is, this is imagining this, that if only the dew of Hermon could fall on Zion, and that parched and dry ground of Zion would just come to life, would be a great boon to the agricultural life in Zion, making things grow, making things green and verdant. And so this is a, a simile of, of an image of growth and fruitfulness. It's saying in the same way that dew brings fruitfulness to the earth, so unity among God's people brings great growth and fruitfulness in and through the community. So this is why unity is so important. Oil and dew. Get it? Because when we experience unity as God's people, when we are a diverse group of people, one in Christ, we show ourselves to be unique and holy and set apart as God's people in the world, and we become fruitful for the glory and mission of Jesus so that more and more people would see the power of Jesus and would be drawn to him. You know, my thoughts immediately go to John 17 and the high priestly prayer of Jesus. As he prayed, you know, just hours before his crucifixion, he prayed in John 17, I pray that they will be one, Father, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I mean, that's amazing. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed just before he died, he prays for us and he prays that we would be unified, that we would be one. And why does he ask for that? Because he says so that the world would know that he is from God, that Jesus is the Savior. So the unity of the church, this is saying, is the supreme apologetic for the gospel. More than tight, logical, apologetic arguments defending the faith, or more than books dismantling atheistic positions. The greatest defense of the church is God's people living as one. Why? Because it sets us apart. It shows the world the power of the gospel to tear down barriers. It shows the world the difference that Jesus makes to heal human community. It extends the good news of Jesus. It is the greatest defense, proclaiming to the world that Jesus is Lord. I think I've told you this story years ago, but many of you know that before I was the senior pastor of Third, I pastored an intentionally multi-ethnic church that we, our, that Third helped to plant called Easton Fellowship. And um, in the early days of Easton Fellowship, we were quite small, just like 50 or 60 people. And one um, Sunday afternoon, we were outside having a block party and um, it was a very eclectic group of people. There were um, black people and white people. There were, um, there were people who, uh, there were at least a couple of people who probably were millionaires. And then there were a couple of people who were battling homelessness. 
there were lots of able-bodied people, and then there were, a couple, there were people in uh, wheelchairs. Um, there were old, there were young. And we were just out there having a meal together outside on the block. And um, a, a young man um, walked up, and he just kind of was staring at us. And he said, um, I just have to ask, who are you people? <laughs> He's like, I... How could this be happening? Who, who are you? And why are you all together? And um, I just said to the guy, I said, you know, we're just a little church. And um, what brings us together is that we love Jesus. And, you know, we'd love for you to just see what this is all about. And so he, he began to come to our church, not because he believed in Jesus, because he was so curious and intrigued about this community. And about a year later, I baptized that guy. And he became a follower of Jesus. See, unity is easy with people who are exactly like you. That's not unity. That's uniformity. It's easy. But when the world sees inexplicable harmony and diversity, when they see people who are gathering together in community in here that cannot get along out there, when they see people handling conflict in ways that promotes peace, when they see us loving our enemies instead of hating them, see, when the world sees that, there is something powerfully glorifying to the Lord Jesus, that unity sets us apart and it bears fruit for the gospel to the honor and glory of Christ. That's why unity is so, so important. It is for the fame and glory of Jesus. Okay? So what's, what is unity? Why it's so important? And then finally, how does unity happen? Well, um, I'm going to get practical here, but just before I do, I have to say something that is absolutely essential, that True unity, first and foremost, is a gift of God himself. That is the most important answer to the how question, that unity is a gift. It's a blessing from God himself. If you look at the psalm with me, you note that three times in this psalm there is a reference to something descending or coming down. See, unity is like precious oil running down on the beard. That's one. Running down on Aaron's beard. That's two. And then it is like the dew coming down on Mount Zion. Running down, coming down, coming down. Unity comes, the message is, from above. I love what um, the famous commentator Derek Kidner says here. He says, true unity, like all good gifts, is from above, bestowed rather than contrived, a blessing far more than an achievement. It's very powerful. You know, in our, in our very divided culture, I hear people calling out for unity all the time. And sometimes people say, you know, what we need is tolerance. What we need is greater acceptance. If we can just learn to love and accept each other, that will get us to unity. Many times we hear calls to education, you know, educating people out of their ignorance, educating people out of their racism, educating people out of um, what divides us. And, you know, I, all of those things I, are, are great, but I just want to say with all due respect, the solutions uh, are naive because they do not take seriously the seriousness of our sin. The Bible says that we are so turned inward upon ourselves, that our hearts are so poisoned by sin and pride and self-centeredness that conflict, racism, hatred, self-preservation, war, and murder are wired into us. It is our nature. Which means that conflict and disunity is not just a social problem. It is a spiritual problem. And what we most need to get unity is not just tolerance and education and hard work, but, but, but rescue, grace. We need God to accomplish in us what we cannot change about us. It must come from above. 
And this is what Scripture says Jesus has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. In talking about the racial and cultural conflict between the Jewish and Gentile factions in the early church, Paul said this, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create one new person out of the two. There's unity and diversity. Thus, making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Did you hear that? That Jesus Christ and his death on the cross first tore down the barrier that separated us from God himself. And then through his death, he tore down the barrier that separated us in our hostility with our enemies and even with our neighbor. In doing so, Jesus created a new community, one that is based not on race, not on class, not on status, not on money, but is not on morality, but is based on grace alone. God is a gracist. Uh, all are equally separated from him and all are, are profoundly equally welcomed into his family by grace. And Jesus' death has destroyed the hostility that separated us from God and from each other. This is why just... My little liturgical note here. This is why we typically do the, the greeting of peace just after the assurance of pardon because we are saying through the death of Jesus, not only is our peace with God, but peace with one another. Jesus has torn down all the walls that divide it. Peace. So that's the first and most important thing. Before unity can be achieved, it must be received. It begins with each of us seeing our own sin, See your own propensity to pride and separation and judgment and arrogance and prejudice and contempt and to receive the rescue of Jesus for us. It means letting our hearts be born again, renewed by his spirit and his grace so that we can no longer see ourselves as superior or inferior to anyone else but because we are saved by grace alone. Before unity is a human work, it is a divine gift. Before it is achieved, it is received. That being said, once we receive unity as a gift, unity becomes a responsibility of every believer. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 4, make every effort, make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. It is a responsibility of every Christian to put the unity that Jesus has won for us into action in the community. How can we do that? Just a couple of things that I pull practically from this text. First of all, identity. Identity. What I mean by that is this, that you've got, friends, you've got to let Jesus be the bedrock foundation of your identity more than anything else if we're going to have unity. In our world of identity politics and tribalism and cancel culture, uh, it is so easy to let yourself be inextricably defined by all of these identity categories that are swirling around us all the time, right and left, a liberal conservative and anti-racist and pro-America and this and that and that, all these, we're always putting ourselves into these categories and putting other people in opposing ones. And, and what happens is this, we begin to develop this sense of self which sociologists see as sort of a, almost like the layers of an onion. So here's a, here's a hypothetical person, okay? I put this slide together in the, the different font sizes to show you kind of the depth of the, of the foundational importance of these identity layers. So let's just imagine a man 
Um, he's a Christian, but it, his, he's really just a churchgoer. His faith is not very important to him. Uh, he's a Republican. He has um, some pretty deep co- uh, political convictions. Uh, he's a business owner, kind of built his business himself, and he's a husband and father. And, and, and you can see kind of the, the deeper something goes in your identity, the more important it is to your sense of self and, and the greater connection that will bring with other people who share those same layers. And so being a Christian is, you know, in there, but it's not the deepest level. And so it takes a whole lot of, it takes a lot of pride in his, his, his values and his vocation and his political opinions. Um, and because those things are such a deep part of his self-understanding, he has a really difficult time um, accepting or being in relationship with people who don't share those things. So if someone is of a different political persuasion or if someone doesn't work as hard in his mind or doesn't have the same values as him, what he will have rising up in him is a, a sense of separation and even contempt. But here's what happens. When you are deeply converted by Jesus, and I don't mean being a churchgoer, I mean born again, saved by Jesus Christ, born of the Spirit, called into an obedient discipleship relationship in which you become a follower of Jesus, your identity layers shift. And so Jesus now becomes the deepest layer of your identity. You are still those other things, but they no longer define you as they once did in the same way. And now this person finds that he has this deep connection with people that formerly he wanted nothing to do with because he shares with them this deeper foundation of his identity that, tr- that goes deeper than all the others in his own commitment and loyalty to Jesus. You know, sometimes I think about Jesus' group of disciples and the fact that he had among them Simon, the zealot, basically a radical conservative, looking to overthrow the government, and also Matthew, the tax collector, a social liberal working for the Roman state. So, so in his 12, Jesus has a Tea Party conservative and a big government liberal. He's got one guy watching Fox, another guy watching CNN. He's got both of these dudes in his crew, and you're like, how is this working out, Jesus? And the reason is, is because their deeper foundation, their deepest loyalty was to Jesus alone. Their life in Christ, with Christ, was a deeper foundation of their identity more than anything else. And so when you find yourself pulling back, separating, judging, condemning, snubbing, having contempt, you've got to ask yourself, where am I putting my identity right now? You know? Am I letting myself be formed by Jesus or by the cultural pressures around me? Am I giving more loyalty to a party or a program or an ideology or an opinion that I am to Jesus? Keep pressing Jesus down deeper into the foundations of your self-identity. Here's another thought. Reciprocity. One of the ways that we often seek unity is through assimilation. Not diversity, but assimilation, which basically means Instead of welcoming the other person in their difference and seeing our unity in Christ, we basically try to make the other person like us to conform to who we are and our sense of what's right. I mean, <laughs> I think a simple illustration of this is in marriage. Um, some, I mean, I can remember years ago when Sarah and I were having some conflict and we went to a marriage counselor, and I remember literally thinking to myself, I can't wait till we get to the counselor and the counselor helps Sarah realize just how right I am, so this conflict will go away. <laughs> That's unity through assimilation, making the other like me. But like we've said, God's vision of unity is not sameness, but unity, but, but differentiation. Not uniformity, but harmony in diversity. And that means that biblical unity is not trying to assimilate the other person, 
uh, to make them like us uh, and to see their difference as a threat, but it's actually to see their difference from us as a gift through which Jesus wants to give us something. Returning to the metaphor of the oil, through Christ, we are all set apart as priests who are mediating the grace of God. And that means each of us who know Jesus are set apart by God, given the Holy Spirit, given something unique and special to offer to the body, whether it be our spiritual gifts or our culture or experience or our gender or personality. And we're called to look at each other in this way, not as a threat or an opponent or someone to overcome or beat or conform, but to see them as a precious priest of God with something important to offer us for our own encouragement and edification that we need. You know, one of the ways that we have made a, a small step towards this in our church um, is in our worship practices. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember this. Some of you weren't here four years ago, but I know many of you were. Um, that we decided that instead of being content with our two different styles of worship, our two different worship choices, if you will, and letting ourselves be divided, we decided to all accept a small diminishment in our preferences of music and worship in order to honor and value the preferences of the other and the gifts we might receive from the other. Now, now was this easy? No, it was not. Uh, was it good? Yes, it was. It was good because we have learned to receive uh, the, the fulsome gifts of one another in our community of worship. So as we seek continuously to become a more diverse church and hopefully make our church a more hospitable place for people of diverse backgrounds and diverse cultures, we want to not make those people like us, to assimilate into us, but to see what they bring as gifts for us to receive and to honor that will make more glory for Jesus Christ. So reciprocity. And one last thing, priority. It says in the first verse, how good and how pleasant unity is. Peterson says, how wonderful, how beautiful. Unity is precious. Unity is beautiful. Unity is so important. It's, it's one of the last things that Jesus prayed for. And so I would just exhort you, friends, is unity, is the unity of the church as important to you as it was to Jesus? Do you prize it? Do you see it as paramount? Do you see it as so important, so precious, so vital that when you see a conflict stirring, uh, when you see gossip growing, when you see backbiting happening in our church, do you give everything you've got to go right at it with all the tools of Scripture to address the conflict and work for peace? You know, the word devil comes from the Greek diabolos, which literally means throw through. Dia means throw, uh, bolos means Sorry, dia means through, bolus means throw. Throw through. The image is of like an, an axe head getting thrown right through a log, cutting it clean. And so the devil is literally the splitter. He is dead set on splitting everything apart that is meant to be together. And I tell you what this, if, if Jesus hangs the mission of his gospel on the unity of the church, you can be darn sure that the devil is going to do everything he can to bring disunity and to split the body. And so, friends, I am just urging you in this moment to fight the devil, to fight the splitter, prioritize unity. You know, let me just be frank, okay? I know that some of you disagree with decisions that we've made about reopening or, or what we're doing with worship. And I know that you disagree, some of you, with how we're doing outside services. And I know that some of you disagree with how we're handling music and worship. And some of you disagree 
or have problems with the way that we've handled the racial crisis. Or some of you disagree with how we're handling our facility protocols. Or maybe some of you are, disagree with the fact that I didn't shave this week. I, I, I don't know. But what I'm asking you, I'm not asking you all to be in agreement. No. As you heard me say, that's not what un, unity is. Unity is not uniformity. What I'm pleading with you is to commit to unity, which means committing to love, uh, committing to, 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 over, to, to dealing quickly with our conflicts and talking openly and honestly with each other, refusing to gossip and talk behind each other's backs, bearing with one another a love, overlooking offenses, committing to forgiveness and reconciliation, trust and respect, uh, refraining, please, refraining from mean uh, comments and, and, and unnecessary arguments over social media. Might just be committing to the practice of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the ministry of holding one's tongue. It's a holy ministry. We have a course called Resolving Everyday Conflict. Uh, Fifty of our leaders have gone through it about to graduate this Saturday. We'll make that course available again in January. I commend that to you. We commit to these practices as a priority for the glory and honor of Jesus. Is unity a priority in your life? Christina Cleveland, in her wonderful book, Disunity in Christ, wrote this, To the extent that I accept the work of the cross as my invitation to participate in the self-giving love of the Trinity, I must be prepared to embrace self-giving love for the other. Are you that committed to it, as Jesus did? Look what it cost Jesus to get unity for us, his, his life. What will it cost you? Will you prioritize it? Will you see it as precious? Will you give yourself to laying down your own life, your own agenda, your own desires, your own way for others as Jesus did for us? So identity, reciprocity, priority. So let me close. God designed humanity to be a beautiful, diverse community united together around Jesus the Son. Not uniformity, but oneness and differentiation. Not sameness, but diversity and harmony all possible because of the accomplishments of Jesus for us on the cross. You know, in some ways, God's very life expresses this amazing truth. We sang earlier that song about the Trinity, one of my favorite songs. Uh, And we sing that God is this mysterious Trinity, three in one. We are not polytheists. Uh, We don't believe in, in, in many gods who have different wills and desires, jostling and competing with one another. Nor are we strict monotheists. We don't believe in just one singular, one person God sitting by himself alone with no love, no relationship, no community. No, we're not polytheists. We don't believe in all diversity and no unity. And we're not strict monotheists where we believe in all uniformity and no diversity. We are Trinitarians who worship three persons unified in one God, one will, one soul, one heart, one unified passion to love and save the world. The very essence of God is united harmony and diversity. And this is what God wants us to be, a community like him a community that reflects his glorious life to the world that so needs peace. Let's pray for that. Let's pray. Holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that you are a community of diversity and unity, three persons and one God. And we praise you that You have accomplished unity for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now help us to make every effort to put the unity that Jesus has won for us into action in our own community so that we can be witnesses to the power of Jesus and all that he does to bring peace to humanity. Lord, we 
we look to that day, that, that day when we will be in Zion, we will be in the kingdom of God, and all the nations will be gathered around the throne, and we will feast together, and we will finally be one together in Christ. We anticipate that day and pray for it even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.